and welcome to Gravitas Wins Conversations. When we think of corporate communication, we think only in terms of PowerPoints and bullet list. But slides don't make you memorable. To stand out, you need to master storytelling skills. To explore this further, I'm talking to a guest whose expertise is in telling business lessons in the form of short stories. I've read his book and most of his columns, and without a doubt, he is a master storyteller. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Hello, Jairam. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Joseph. I am happy to be here. Why did you choose a fiction format rather than a very standard non-fiction format? You know, my stories are actually a combination of both. They are based on true episodes. So that makes it non-fiction. Mm. But in order to create the stories, because a story needs to have a protagonist, an antagonist, and a conflict, and a solution, I actually created these characters. But a lot of my friends who read my book said that they identified these people in their organizations. And people being people, you know, we are the same everywhere. So it's a mixture of both. The themes are nonfiction. The style is fiction. Yeah. As I read through 21 stories, some I felt it is me. Yes. In some, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> the manager that this story is about. So you, yeah. it, is, it is very true. Yes. Uh, I want to dig deeper into one of the stories, what that story is, how you framed it, and, and so on and so forth. And I'm choosing the story, Pink Envelope. But before we dig into it, how do you source these uh, stories? Uh, you know, I have, um, I don't have too many great qualities, but there's one part of my brain which uh, remembers episodes and it also, you know, brings it out at the most relevant moment. The other great quality I have, again, I told you I don't have too many other great qualities, is that I can relate, I can bring jokes on the table when something is happening. I can make it so relevant. I am like the court jester. So a lot of my friends would rather call me for a party because at least the party won't be boring. So that's the, mm -hmm. actually, that's the secret as to where I get this. And uh, I think uh, for uh, want of doing anything else, I am a voracious reader and I observe people because I enjoy trying to figure out what are the subliminal level motives because of which we act. The mm. way we do. So, you know, very mm -hmm. often you, you might hate somebody, but when you understand what is their backstory and the kind of problems they've gone through. Maybe somebody's wife has died and things like that. You don't hate them. You actually start sympathizing with them. So understanding human beings and behavior is so very important if you want to learn to empathize and get along with people. That That's a good segue into the story, the pink mm -hmm. envelope. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing what that story is? Oh, yeah. Uh, that story is really one of my favorites. And uh, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, when I was learning story writing, uh, I was told, you know, that uh, sometimes characters will walk into your story. Because when we plan a mm -hmm. story, when you plan a story, you plan, you know, a what is a story? Let's get back to that first. Because many people really don't know this very obvious thing. A story has to have minimum two people. One is the protagonist and the other is the antagonist. And there has to be a desire. So the protagonist desires something very badly. And the antagonist, it's the protagonist desires, the antagonist pushes back. So what happens is between the two, there is a conflict. If there is no conflict, there is no story. 
the data point I had on this particular story, the pink envelope, it's very fascinating. If you look at the genesis of the story, many years ago when I was working in a company in Kota, I don't want to name the company, I had a boss who used to shout at everybody. For the smallest things he would shout and he would not shout at you. Let's say he wanted to give you a mm. message. He had his favorite whipping horses. He would call them and shout at them. And you got the message. So mm. that that stuck in me. And when I was writing the story, somewhere that guy came into my you know, peripheral vision saying, yeah, there used to be this guy who was shouting. Why can't I write a story around him? And that's the only data point I had, Joseph. And I built this whole story mm. around that. So then I asked myself this question. And this question I asked myself even then when I was 20 and a half years old. That's the first uh, job. That he's shouting and he's getting away because everybody is damn scared of him and they want to retain their jobs. Well, what happens if some kid is there from a well-to-do family who doesn't have to worry about the money and he shouts back at him publicly? You know, what happens to this guy? So these are the only two data points. And I use that to create the story. So this is a story of a HR person working in uh, an IT company. And his wife also is from, both of them are from the Management Institute. And I created her as somebody from the Management Institute because the, I had to facilitate a lot of dialogue between the two. That she becomes a sounding mm-hmm. board. So it's, so it's important to bring somebody who's been in the corporate world. And then uh, she, when they have a child, she gives up a job and becomes a part-time trainer. So I had to also bring that element in because if he moves his job, the wife can't move very easily. She's already working somewhere. So I had to create this in the thinking. That when he moves, she must be ready to move. So I had to make her a part-time trainer because of the child. And uh, this man at at an ASCOM conference in Chennai, he meets another owner of a company who tells him, why don't you come and join me? I need somebody like you. You know, I got one of my jobs uh, in this manner. So I brought that element into the story. And this happened at an ASCOM conference in Bombay. And uh, he comes home and his wife tells him, listen, our baby is old. Every time that going gets tough, you tend to leave the company. So, you know, you cannot keep changing jobs, you know, and uh, she needs stability. He says, don't worry, this job, I will stay. So he makes a commitment and they shift to Chennai. <clears throat> and he's doing well, uh, you know, with the, in the job and the boss, who's the owner of the company, keeps telling him that he's more than an HR guy to him and things like that. But one thing he notices is that, that the gentleman has hired a lot of people from IITs and the best premium institutions. And then once in a while, he will shout at them publicly. So one day his wife notices uh, that her husband is uh, feeling low. Earlier he was feeling very high. So she asks him why not. Uh, because this, these, you know, wives are the first people to notice when your mood is off. Yes. So he tells her, listen, I don't understand, but I got this floating anxiety because he shouts at people. So my worry is one day if he shouts at me, I won't be able to take it. That's the fear he has. You know, his uh, worst nightmare, as one would call it. So... She uh, talks to him and uh, tells him, why don't you find out more about this uh, owner of your company? Why does he behave the way he does? So this person mm. then goes and he has uh, made friends with the CFO. So he asks the CFO and said, you can bring in elements in the story, either through a dialogue or the backstory, or the author can tell the backstory. Here I chose to make the CFO tell him this. And he tells him, listen, this uh, owner of ours is the youngest son in a family. His two elder brothers have studied at Harvard. He has not studied at Harvard. And, uh, you know, his uncle gives him all the business. So he's not worried about getting business because uncle runs a big IT company and we are the back end for them. But uh, I think uh, the CFO tells him, I think he has a complex that within the family is not done very well. 
And one of the reasons why he hires so many IITs and MBAs is because he wants to make up for that by telling the family, see, you guys will be but I have got so many of these IITs and MBAs working for me. And then he says, you know, um, he, he, he thinks that we uh, need the job very badly, so he shouts to control us. And here's his insecurity, because again, I, I drew mm. from my reading. There's this book by Wine Dyer. It's called uh, Sky is the Limit. And in that, it's a very good book. Wine Dyer says that authoritarian people are usually very insecure. So if you see anybody authoritarian around you, including your dad, please remember there's something that he's insecure about. So I linked it up in the story saying that this man is authoritarian because he's insecure about something. And that insecurity, I just explained to you where he stood within his own family. And family was a big mm. business family. So this gentleman is talking to his wife and then she she's a sounding board and she tells him, listen, uh, you told me that he treats you more than an HR guy and he seeks your advice on so many things. So maybe, you know, you should not just run away this time. He says, no, no. And that is what is called as an epiphany moment that he has, you know, like uh, Archimedes in that tub of water. And... Uh, I don't tell the readers what the FFNE moment is. I keep that as a suspense. Yeah. And the wife sees this guy with a pink envelope in his pocket going every day to office and coming back with the envelope. And one day, a week later, she realizes the envelope is no longer there and he is in high spirits. Mm. So she asks mm. him, uh, well, what happened? What, what was in the envelope? Initially, the first day she asks, she says, no, I'll tell you later. And when the envelope is no longer mm. there and he's in high spirits, she says, what happened? You look very happy. So he says, yes, this is what I did. Uh, my boss called me to his room and told me, you're carrying that damn pink envelope every day. What is it about? <laughs> so I had to, you know, as an author, I had to bring in, because very often if you use humor to tell an insecure person something, they accept it because their ego egos are very bloated. So I used humor here. So he says, Sir, you know, I'm carrying this my resignation letter. He says, what's wrong with you? You are more than an HR guy to me. What, what makes you think? He says, ah, that's exactly the point. If I'm more than an HR guy, I want to give you some feedback. Yeah, tell me. He says, you know, because you shout at everybody and I'm getting this feeling that one day if you shout at me, uh, I won't be able to take it. So the day you shout at me publicly, I'll just give you this envelope and walk away. So the boss laughs, comes around, picks up the envelope, takes out the resignation letter, pins it on his green board and he throws the envelope away and tells him, that letter will remind me. So that that was what the uh, so uh, and and yeah, uh, 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 the epiphany moment really came when uh, while they were discussing, he realized that if you threaten the worst nightmare of somebody, they change because his wife asked him question. Mm. If somebody has inculcated, imbibed a habit for 30, 40 years, why would they even change that? It's very difficult to change attitudes, you know, Joseph. So the epiphany moment was that if you do something or show a pointer to somebody which threatens his worst nightmare, and in this case, the worst nightmare of the boss was, this is what the uh, protagonist tells him, that, you know, what happens if somebody shouts back at you publicly? The boss mulls over it for such few seconds and then comes and takes the letter and does what he did. But that is what strikes him as his worst nightmare. That if somebody turns around and shouts back at him, this fear that he is using to control people is destroyed like a damn squib. And that's how the story evolved. Jairam, I love this story because 
this could be true yes in in somebody's life yes. but there are so many elements you have brought in in a very rhythmic and a unison manner mm-hmm. and i i read it multiple times right so you you started with a data point and a question as you said yes but then there is a coach or a guide in the form of wife yes. who is kind of a sounding board yes and all of us have this kind of an insecurity and we have kind of hide it in one form or the other yes and the other person the the hr the lead mm. he is not encountering it directly right. he's not going directly with that no this is the hr is, the, the protagonist he, is the hr person that the other person is his boss the owner the the boss i'm right. i'm talking about the protagonist he yeah. is not he is not encountering the boss directly he yes. is as you said yes. with the humor he is hitting indirectly right. and then making that particular point correct and it is resolved in a happy manner yes it is it is it is not like he is quitting or or any of those kinds of stuff or or you could have ended the story in any different form yes but it ended in a happy manner for both yes so that's why i love this particular story as i said i have read this story multiple times played the story multiple times in my mind uh this is an awesome uh, story now as you said uh, jairam you had a data point and you started with a question right and and then rest of everything came in right yes yes how do you create these characters and how do you go about writing this uh before that let me share a few things about story writing because i'm sure your audience yeah. is more keen to do that <clears throat> you know the opening line of the story is the most important line mm. and uh, one has to get it right like uh, you know a few years or 10 15 years ago some of the best uh, writers they got together to identify which is the best opening line in the last century and uh, they arrived at this opening line of the story it's by charles dickens the story the book is a tale of two cities and the opening line is it yeah. was the best of times it was the worst of times because the whole story mm. is about best of times in one country and worst of times in the other country the two countries being england and france So you know you won't believe it uh, Joseph in these 21 stories for each story I would have written the opening line at least 20 25 times on each story to get it right mm. because mm. because uh, like in movie making you know a movie is made in scenes and what is the scene a scene is it's a day shot it's a night shot it's an indoor shot it's an outdoor shot these are all scenes and when a director mm-hmm. shoots these scenes since he has all the artists and the whole infrastructure is there sometimes because a movie some each scene is sometimes not more than one and a half to two minutes so if it's a 120 mm. minute film it'll have about 60 to 70 scenes this is standard so when the director shoots these scenes sometimes he will shoot 90 scenes but in the movie he'll put only 70 scenes why does he decide mm. to, why does he decide to drop a scene because he will he will ask himself does this scene do one of the two or does it do both the things if it doesn't do this he'll drop the scene it's very interesting and the first thing the scene must do is it must tell the audience something more about the characters in that scene you should need to know something more the second thing it should also do is it must take the story forward that's why hollywood movies mm-hmm. don't have no don't have people singing and dancing around trees because they don't tell they don't move the story forward so that's the point there similarly in story writing when you write the first sentence the reader must want to read the second sentence 
when you finish the first paragraph, he must want to read the second paragraph. Otherwise, he will, he's got so many things around him, so many signals and distractions. Why the hell would he even invest in reading your story? So that is what I had to do in the story. I had to invest in characters and how I write, you ask me, right? What I do is, once I've got the germ of an idea, I try to figure out, <clears throat> should I start with a backstory where I say it or should I tell the, let the uh, uh, people in the characters talk about the backstory of somebody like the CFO talks of that guy's handicap or his, uh, you know, mm -hmm. complex. There are various means of introducing, uh, you know, information and, and, very important in story as in script writing never tell try and show now this is if anybody who wants to write script writing and when they go into studying script writing they'll be told show don't tell now what's the difference let's say there is this lady who walks out on a winter day it's snowing and i write saying that she walks out and she feels the chill it is snowing and uh, it's cold and she can feel the cold, I'm telling. But suppose I say mm. that she walked out, suddenly she felt the breeze on her nose, she turned her back to the wind, and she pulled her collar up, and she touched her nose, and she found that it had become chilled up, and she was worried that it might just break and fall off. Now I'm showing. So in story writing, mm. also while writing, you have to have this de de default thing in yourself to stop yourself from getting into this you know, uh, habit of telling long things. So coming back to the point, I, I then decide, hey, what is the theme of my story? Because you have to get the theme and the premise right very early so that everything you do, mm. you put it around that. So the theme of my story was, you know, that uh, insecurity, you know, breeds complex behavior. Mm. And, and, and then... How do you, and the premise simply is the story, you know, there's this guy, there is his wife, there is that guy, and there's the conflict. That's the premise. So I worked around this. So the messaging, what you rightly said, that the, there is a mentoring element in this is, because if you preach, people don't want to hear it from you. More so, the, this generation, yeah. which is quite irreverent. So you have to give it to them in a manner where they are enjoying it, and they are also trying to decipher the story with you. They are trying to predict. Mm -hmm. They are trying to predict with you what is the next. If you can get the audience hooked on, whether it's a story or a movie, if the audience starts thinking with you, you got them where you want you. They won't take that cigarette break, or he will not. So I had to bring in this that all of us face tough situations in our career and our personal life. How do you finally? So the answer lies this way: observe, reach out, share. And figure out why a person behaves the way he does. Understand their insecurity. Mm. Sympathize, empathize with that. But at yet, try and give them feedback in a humorous way that you have won the battle. That is the whole mm. thing. And yes. My whole, uh, the template in my head for every story works in the way I've just explained. Jairam, you have taken this into your columns also. Your columns are also in a story form. All yes. of the stories, uh, the Absolutely. columns are also in the story Absolutely. form. Absolutely. Do you write every day? Because you said, you know, the opening line itself, you wrote 20, 25 times for each of the stories. So right. do you sit and write every day? Uh, how is your process that works? Uh, I, I write the first draft. 
you know, if I have to write a column, today my columns are how much? 500 words, 450, 500 words, because I've got a word limit of one page on business uh, world. While in the story also, I had to keep it to a certain limit because my plan was that in about seven or eight minutes, the person should be able to read one story. Mm. So when I write the first draft, all good teachers will tell you, just let it vomit it out. So my first mm, draft mm, mm. on a business world article of 400 words is sometimes 5,000, 6,000 words, my first draft. Mm. Because I'm just I'm just vomiting it out, you know, the way it comes. And it, I don't follow any order, grammar, nothing. Just vomit it out. Now then the next cut and next cut and next cut comes. I remember uh, during my school days, uh, I had read on uh, Somerset Mom had written something on how do you write a pressy. The pressy writing is so important. So he had said, write the first draft and put it in a draw. Three days later, take a red pen and strike out every third word. <laughs> and then and then and then read it it will still make sense you just have to have a few conjunctions here and there but it will still make sense so if you may if you write let's say 5000 words and you strike out every third word you have brought it down to 3000 odd words right and then he says three days later <laughs> yeah. take it again and strike out that every third word you have brought it down to 1600 words and you can still make sense of the damn thing you know put some connecting things in it and he says do it once more and you are down to 400 500 words so I also do this mm -hmm. and I, I, I also follow another thing because sometimes your brain, you know, tells you a few things that you should do and not do. Uh, I remember what uh, I read about William Faulkner, a very big writer. He wrote about, uh, he said about Ernest Hemingway. He said, mm. when you read Ernest Hemingway, you don't have to reach out for a dictionary. Yeah. So there are, there are people who write and they think writing big words and bombastic language makes you come across as a great storyteller. No. So I follow that. So I do the same thing from 5,000 words. And it's like telling a mother, which of your children do you love the best? So I have to actually <laughs> eliminate a eliminate lot of things which I wanted to be in the story. You know, like I will bring her one more character. And in the end, I ask, but what is the character doing here? Like, you know, watching mm -hmm. a movie, what is the character doing here? Is he adding to the story? Is he telling me is there anything more about the protagonist or the antagonist? If he's not... Cut him out. Doesn't matter how big he is. And that is how. So my mm. first draft, if my deadline is, let us say, 10 days from today, I'll write the first draft today. Mm -hmm. Three, four days later, I'll polish it. But, you know, I am one of those mm. guys who works great on deadlines. And on the last day, I'll sit yeah. and, and finish the story. So this is this is the, the art of story writing, as I would say, that people need to look at. And okay. everybody has their own styles. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I completely agree on that. Uh, do you write on computer? Or so this five thousand words, yeah, yeah. vomiting I, it out. I, all I, of this I, happens. I, I, okay. Everything on the laptop, and uh, you know the most important thing one has to realize is, uh, and this comes out of your own life and your own kids. Never be preachy about everything. The moment, and I use that default mode again. Am I preaching somewhere? If I am preaching, I have to eliminate mm. it because the reader gets put off. My children get mm. put off if I preach with them. You know, they just walk away saying, "Dad, you are dated." And my reader is of that age, you know. So he'll say, this damn author is dead. Mm. Why is he preaching to us? So you have to be careful about mm. some of these things. First line must help the reader move to the second line. First paragraph must motivate second paragraph. Opening line must be interesting. And don't preach. And show more, tell less. And that's it. And, and eliminate everything that doesn't make sense. You have repeated this 
I mean, we have talked multiple times, and you have said this particular thing: don't preach, yes. don't preach. Yes, yes. Uh, in, in almost all of the conversations that I had with you, right. Uh, so, so uh, I can understand how important that particular uh, phrase is it, and it puts off. Is, uh, for it you. puts off the person, reader. It, and the mm. moment it puts him off, and today, if you look at WhatsApp, you can see how polarized we get so quickly. Because yep. you know, like uh, Oliver Goldsmith says in his poem, the, um, the 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 deserted village. He says, you know, when emotion sets in, reason flees. Mm, mm. I, I follow this in life too. If I'm getting, if me and my spouse are having an argument and she gets emotional or I get emotional, I stop the argument because once a person is emotional, rationality can never be injected. Similarly, mm. preaching makes the other person emotional. Who the hell is he to tell me about this? And then I have lost the reader. You just taught me a lesson without preaching. Right. <laughs> Don't fight with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, how did you develop this? Uh, did you study this creative writing, storytelling? How did you develop this uh, skill, uh, Jero? Like I told you, you know, I uh, I know how to tell stories because of that's the only thing I can do. A uh, lot of my friends, my family said, why don't you start writing? So what I did is I joined an online program, a US program. So in the middle of the night, two o'clock, they would give a topic and I'd write. They would teach you the fundamentals mm. first and they give you a topic and you write. There may be 30 people from all different parts of the world. And then once you write and submit it, all 30 will critique it. Now you imagine, mm. imagine I am being stripped naked in that thing. Because if I give it to my friend or you, you will be very polite because you know me. You don't want to spoil the relationship. But these 30 are there and you know they say, oh, this is stupidity. I mean, this is like writing like an imbecile and you've got to take it. So that is the first thing that you learn, you know, that uh, good and the bad will come to you. You don't let it affect you. And then my mm. teacher, the teacher who taught me, she said, if you're keen to write, Start with short stories, point number one. And she said, if you want to write short stories, first read short stories. So I said, how many should I read? She said, read between 350 to 400 short stories. So mm. I read I read 450 short stories. There are books available, mm. classics, you know, of short stories. So sometimes a book will contain 100 short stories. So you buy and read. And, you know, write from Somerset Mom to Prem Chand to um, Guy de Maupassant to Edgar Allan Poe to uh, Jeffrey Archer, every story I read. And I could see, mm. I could see the template. You know, mm. antag protagonist, strong desire, antagonist, and how the conflict, rising action, falling action, and finally the denoma. What happens? The other interesting thing I learned was, there are only five or six kinds of conflicts in all stories in the world, right from Iliad, Odyssey, Mahabharata, Ramayana to what I'm writing. What are these five or six conflicts? There is the conflict between two human beings. That's the one kind of conflict. Mm -hmm. There's a conflict between a human being and an animal, like Jaws, the, the, mm. movie, the movie where the bear runs after this guy. There's a conflict between human being and nature, where the movie Earthquake mm. or, you know, uh, Mist then there's a conflict between the human being within themselves. So the person starts with certain values. He experiences certain things around him, maybe love, that thing. So he changes. That is what we call as a character arc. You start as something and you end as something. Then there's a conflict between human beings and aliens. 
Mm. So many movies you have seen, right? This is the fifth kind of conflict. And now we are getting into the zone of the sixth kind of conflict, which is between human beings and artificial intelligence. And the machine. Machine. Mm. And you look at any story. Look at Mahabharat between human beings. Look at that protagonist, antagonist conflict. So this standard template is there. You just need to know how to use it without preaching, without boring, and mm. giving the audience something more to look forward to. Lovely, lovely. Um, I had a free session now from yeah. all your less, uh, learnings. So so thanks, uh, Jaira, for that. Now, one is writing as a business, a short story for a book, for a column, and not be preachy about it. But how do I use it in my daily corporate life? Can I can I use this in my daily corporate life? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, the episodes are real, what I mentioned to you. Like uh, there is one story where uh, in a in a in an auto company, you know, auto companies which sell trucks and cars, they have four four regional managers. The country is divided into four major regions, and then there is one guy who does institutional selling. So he sells all over the country, and he sells to institutions like the police and that and this. The regional managers are able to give monthly targets and stick to it because they, they have a team that does it with the dealers. But this man, he might suddenly get an uh, inquiry from a government for 500 trucks. Mm. So, so mm -hmm. his boss will tell him, fine, so we are, we are putting 500 trucks on your name. By when do you think this will happen? He says it will happen in three months' time. End of three months, it doesn't happen. He gets his pants taken off. But the poor guy, that is not in his control as it is in the control of mm. the legal managers. So there was a story of this guy heading institutions who gets it always in the meetings. In the review meetings, he gets it all the time. And he is told very clearly by the CEO that, listen, if you don't meet your numbers, one of us is going to be looking for a job and it ain't going to be me. And he was one of my colleagues who had, who had succeeded in institution selling in some other company, big company, but here he didn't know. He was in sixes and sevens. So I told him, what's the problem? He says, boss, there is this government organization where I go. I don't even have a place to sit. And that guy gives me an appointment and doesn't see me. So I said, but then the boss, our boss, the CEO, why don't you let him get a feel of this? He says, no, no, I can't take him there. There's no place to sit. There's no urinal, blah, blah, blah. I said, listen, so long as you don't do that, he doesn't know where your shoe pinches. Mm. It's that come walk a mile in my shoes, you know. And then one day, yeah. I motivated him to take him there. And that guy went there and had such a horrendous experience. When he came back in the subsequent review meeting, his tone changed. It was not, when are you going to meet the number? He says, oh my God, I hope the last time you went, you were able to get some decent lunch. You know, and I hope he met you when he called you. He completely empathetic. And that is something that book, mm. when I wrote that story, many people in this corporate world wrote back to me or called me saying, Jairam, I use this because I realized my boss had been parachuted into that position. He had never worked yeah. as a salesman and never walked the streets. So I made him come with me somewhere and suddenly his attitudes changed because I gave him the kind of experience and problems I'm going through. So it was such a big uh, you know, lesson for these guys and they're using it. Make your mm. boss walk in your shoes. He will appreciate and you know, sympathize, empathize more with you. Do that. Doesn't matter how uncomfortable the feeling for him, but that's the, that is your life. That's what you're going through day in, day out. Yeah. Make your life easier by making him walk in your shoes. Okay, so that's from a you know sales or or in one dimension, right? But let's say for example, 
in my email writing mm. in my conversation with my ceo in my presentation to the board or to my managers how can i use the storytelling especially the one that you talked about show don't tell mm. you see uh, there's a lot of information about what is a good presentation in fact there mm-hmm. is, there yeah. is there is a powerpoint presentation called death by powerpoint it's an amazing presentation amazing it says bullets don't kill mm-hmm. as much as powerpoints kill and mm-hmm. it's shown all people sitting in yeah. the room in various forms of sleeping etc and there's another great communicator called gar reynolds he settled in uh, mm-hmm. uh, london uh, in uh, tokyo i followed him a lot in my presentations he says you must prepare a presentation which only you can give if anybody else catches hold of the presentation it won't make sense to him similarly mm. he says not more than 3 points bullet points in a slide ideally he says one bullet point one visual one bullet point the rest you elaborate and believe you me i have done that because wherever you go i speak a lot they'll say can we have a copy of the presentation we'll put it in our computer i give it to them <laughs> they cannot do a damn with it because <laughs> there's one big visual there is one small line and the rest is you know voice over so practice this when you make presentations because don't prepare a presentation with lots of lines which you then stand there and read if you have to read the mm. audience doesn't need you so this is the first thing that people must realize and then ask yourself which are the presentations that entertained you and taught you something and you learned from it you know like david ogilvy in uh, one of the marketing gurus says don't treat the consumer like a moron the consumer is your mm. spouse the consumer is your spouse so if you are making a new washing powder give it to her launching and she'll tell her uses and tell me she'll use it and say damn thing doesn't froth enough it don't work so similarly don't treat your audience like a moron because put yourself in the audience shoes and look at those things experiences which you love the presentation you love the ted talk everything starts with a story and the best way to start a story is once upon a time if you look in history all classical stories whether it is cinderella or red riding hood start with once upon a time start your story with once upon a time and see how it works for you but ask yourself is that what your presentation is that something that you can sit through if you can't you have no right to subject somebody else to it especially if they have senior people you are bored believe you me because you like in war there is no trophy for runners up you know the runners up gets the rip tombstone similarly when you are presenting <laughs> to the board it's like a war damn it there's no runners up trophy so make sure you do it fine but the other thing one has to mm-hmm. remember in a presentation is don't bluff do your research and in every story writing session that i have gone to first thing the story writing guru tell us is be truthful do your research that's why if you see in my stories mm. in my stories if i say that at the taj mansing in delhi they went into the coffee shop so and so i would actually google taj and see whether the coffee shop is still there i may have been there 20 days 20 years ago like i was reading this about national geographic they double check every story triple check actually so if there is a story by somebody who's given them a story saying i was sitting in this restaurant in nepal and i could see kanchenjunga out of the window peak kanchenjunga they will send it to one of their stringers singers are people who keep contributing you know not on their payrolls but they are paid and they'll tell him will you go to the restaurant 
sit on that seat and see whether sit. you can see Kanchenjunga. So oh. do your research because I'll tell you one thing, Joseph. When you are addressing an audience, half the time they're googling to see whether you're talking, uh, what you're talking is fair or not. So why do you think the audience will not Google this? So be mm. honest, do your research, and then tell your story. Very valid point, and especially the one that you talked about presenting to the board. Yes, I think you know if you are going to read it out. they can ask it to be read by anybody no no so you are making yourself as 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 an indispensable person by just having one point and one visual yes. and only if you can narrate it uh, they are going to say joseph only joseph can uh, give this particular presentation yes. nobody else can give it nobody. right and, and so I'll, and i'll tell you something i ran an advertising agency so sometimes mm-hmm. my creative team will come and say we produce one of the best ads headline is fantastic i would actually call my pun and ask run the headline through him in hindi and say kya samjha because mm. because on in the print media let me tell you especially in the print media or in an email if the other person doesn't get it the way you meant it to go he will move to the next story in the paper that mm. lacks of it. and this is i i heard a story about napoleon and i'm sure your readers will love the story you know communication is what it is what is in my head i transmit it to go into your head with very little transmission losses mm, mm. if i want to say x and it gets into your head only 0.1x has gone into your head i have failed in communication so there is the story about napoleon bonaparte mm-hmm. he was one of the biggest best strategist in war strategist but he was never fighting in the front line and in those days they would fight in the daytime in the morning the bugle would sound and the two people will go and fight in the evening there will be the beating of the retreat so they will come back so that in the night the red cross and others can get the injured and the so the the rule was that we will not fight in the night then in the night mm-hmm. one of the generals who was there would write down what happened during the day and a dispatch rider on a horse will ride all the way back to napoleon who was in his tent Napoleon will read what they did, what we did, this we did, we did, we put guns here. He will then write his strategy for the next day, but he would not send it back immediately. This is the brilliance of the man. He had one of the dumbest guys in his uh, army standing outside his tent. He will tell him to read it. And what did you understand? The first read that guy would understand hundred percent diametrically opposite. Napoleon never took the trouble to explain to him because the general. Napoleon was not there to explain. He would rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Sometimes rewrite fifteen, sixteen times till that guy got it close to what he meant. And then he would send it because he knew now there would be very few interpretational errors. So when you want to communicate, you want to make a presentation, you want to send an email, please double check it the way Napoleon did it. That will I'm the words mm. I'm using, the sentences I'm using. are they going to communicate what i want to communicate am i communicating with least dissonance and you know transmission errors right now you're talking to me i'm talking to you you're nodding if your eyeballs move this way that way i know i have lost you i will come back and repeat the subject but you don't have it when you send an email mm so certain words decode differently you know i remember in one company when i was head of hr the union guy walked into my room and i was sitting in a very you know lackadaisical fashion 
and he had a lot of concern on his face. And I said, Are bhai, tell me, so what's your problem? And I had just joined there as the head of HR, and this man went ballistic. He said, If mm-hmm. you, even you, sir, see me as a problem, you have never experienced me, you're six months in this company, and you also see me as a problem. I realized the word problem decoded differently. When I was using the word problem, what I meant was, Kya hal hai? That man felt that the whole world had felt that he is the most difficult guy to deal with. And here is a man who's already biased against him. So I made him sit down, apologized, mm. told him what I meant. Oh, Isarare Saab, Chai Mangalo. Mm. Mm. So how a word decodes with the other person, you have to understand. Because certain words are red, red flags. Nobody bothers to find out this, you know. You just shoot it off and then understand, wonder why the other person listens to you. Thanks. Uh... It's a it's a very good MBA lesson in in a short you know I mean thirty forty minutes. Thank you. Uh, so thanks, uh, Jairam, for that. Thank you. A couple of last questions, uh, Jairam. Yes, please. You have worked with you have un- interacted with many leaders, right. and you have written about many leaders uh, as well. Right. In your opinion, what are the great qualities of some of these leaders that you admire? Yes, I'll tell you. When uh, maximum amount of leaders they have the biggest problem is a three-letter word, ego. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, many of us get pitchforked into positions for which we're not fully ready. But circumstances, like mm. the shelf life of a CEO in America is two years old, two years. Mm. Sometimes the previous guy sacked, I'm pushed. So without having all the competencies at 60%, 70%, I'm promoted. This is, we do that in the organization all mm. the time. You promote an a, a, yeah. assistant vice president to pres- vice president with 60% competence. But the mistake I start making is, oh, if I've been promoted, I have 100% of the competencies. Now let me see what, when, how soon I can get the next level. This damn ego doesn't mm. let us see us the way we are, our frailties. So many mm. of the CEOs who are there are not really deserving of their position. They've got there because of all these things. So you have observed it, but you don't have to tell them this. Okay. Now the question is, how do you break through that ego? Like, you know, Joseph, the one way I crack my interviews, whenever I've gone to an interview as a candidate, this is a secret I'm letting out. <laughs> Let the interviewer speak about himself. Mm. Find a topic which you can take it to him. And let us say in a 20, in a 40-minute interview, if he speaks for 35 minutes, he's going to say, this is a fantastic candidate because for the first time, somebody allowed him mm. to speak about himself. So coming back to the point about great leaders, those who are comfortable with themselves and their pluses and minuses, these guys make a great leader. The guys who are willing to say, I don't know, and they're willing to learn from their subordinates. I have met leaders, traditional family-owned leaders with absolutely no education, running six and seven billion dollar companies. And I have tried to understand what is their, one is their ability to attract and hold great talent and, mm. and they make each of their reportees feel as though each one of them is special i have had a situations i have had situations where mds and cmds and called me and told me we want your consulting help why don't you i said what is the problem he said my problem is my c level doesn't collaborate amongst each other i said uh, so I, there's a fortunately there was a bottle of water kept in his room so i asked him where is the neck of this bottle? He said, neck of the bottle on the top. 
I said all organizations also have the bottleneck at the top. You are the bottleneck. I can't solve your problem. So he would say, what the hell do you mean? I said, every employee in this company, right from the intern to the top man, wants to feel relevant, wants to feel wanted, and wants to feel, you know, that he's important. If you have a coterie amongst your top team, already you have destroyed teamwork and collaboration. And you just think around you and look at some of the large organizations. We can name the people who are part of the coterie of the owners. So I told him, if you, I'm already going through some. Yes. So if you can, and doesn't matter how large a company, it doesn't matter if you're a manager with six subordinates. If you are an assistant manager with four subordinates, you can still practice this. Let them perceive you as being equidistant from each of them. Then they will know, you, each one of them will give their best for you. So leaders who have mastered this art and leader who is comfortable with his own weaknesses and pluses and minuses and he, a leader he knows that he doesn't have all the answers. A leader's job is to ask the right questions. We have to train our people in MBA institutions to ask the right questions because the answers are available everywhere. And the mm. last thing, last thing is genuine compassion for others not fake compassion because that is seen through genuine compassion your people will die for you and they'll kill for you very true i, I think these are the four or five qualities that and you look around the broad spectrum of leaders in the world and in india you can identify who are they and let me tell you when i speak on leadership i say a great leader is somebody who doesn't have legitimate control over his people like if you are the ceo and you tell your team I want you guys to come tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning because 8 o'clock I have to go for golf. 5 to 6, they will all turn up. Because that's the power of a leader, right? His ability to convene. And these guys depend on their performance at Brazil on you. But the best leaders in the world, and this is again, I'm going back to Jim Collins, good to great. He says, in leadership again, there are five levels. There's level yeah. 1 and level 5. He says, level 5 leader is somebody who has two qualities. And if he doesn't have both, he cannot be level 5. He can be level 4, level 3. To qualify for level 5, you have to have a strong will, firm will, and you must have humility. Mm. So, if you don't have these two, don't worry. Now, the biggest leaders who had these qualities, in my opinion, I don't want to name corporate leaders because that will be biased, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, mm. He picked up his hand and the audience listened to him. So can you be a Mahatma Gandhi? Because if you have humility and firm resolve that your objectives you want to achieve, I think these are the greatest leaders. So I remember in the US, I was watching a program on Jim Collins' book when somebody asked Larry Bossidy, which means none of the American CEOs can ever make it to a... because <laughs> none of them are humble. So mm. how, do you, how do you make them do that? So he said a fantastic thing. He said... It's possible to make these guys who are supposed to be the worst characters in terms of ego. You can bring humility in their lives and make them level one leader by giving them a life-changing experience. Let's say you are the biggest leader, the biggest, you know, the most uh, difficult guy and egoistic. But you go to the hospital one day and the doctor tells you, listen, buddy, you have, uh, you know, mm. like the thing, uh, tumor in your head. You're going to count your minutes now, not even your days and years. And that will make you a little more humble. So, in a broad, I don't know whether I conveyed it, but, you know, leaders who are humble are the ones who understand that in this whole universe, irrespective of their bank balance and the people they control, they are insignificant. Now, that makes a great leader. 
Wonderful. Thanks. What's the kindest thing anyone has done for you? In my personal life, uh, there are a lot of it, but uh, let me talk about the work life. Uh, I had joined a company mm-hmm. and uh, I had come in uh, where the uh, the C-level guys were already very close to each other. Some of them had studied together at the same college. Some of the few of them had worked together in the previous company. So it's very difficult for a new guy to fit in uh, when you join at the C-level yeah. in a company. Because you must remember that they are all so well bonded. What you say to one about the other will go to the other guy. It Just like that it will go. And, uh, you know, enemies, yeah. enemy is my friend. So you make uh, enemies with one, uh, three of them will start becoming indifferent towards you. It's not easy to, you know, actually blend and bond in a group where... So I remember that um, one guy in that group, who the, the two, three of them or four of them who had bonded so well, uh, at a board meeting in America, I remember something happened and I know some, some discussions were held and possibly there was a talk about not my pulling my weight, but my not pulling my weight and things I need to do. But they didn't give me, the, my boss didn't give me the feedback directly. But on the way back, this gentleman, he took me aside in the airport and said, Yaram, I think uh, these are two three things you need to watch out for because I was shocked because I thought those are two three things I was doing which was uh, going to earn me brownie points, but I realized that it was working counterproductive. So, and I think that was a very kind thing he did for me. Because he need okay. not have done it. Good. Uh, yes. What's the definition of living a good life? Uh, it's it's actually very easy. And uh, maybe today I am wiser, you know, with age. Because uh, most of the time I was otherwise, today I'm wise, as I would say. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first thing that you want is you want health. Don't do anything mm-hmm. to jeopardize that because no matter what you have, if you don't have health, you are not only a pain to yourself, but you are a bigger pain to people around you. You have no right to subject them to this lack of peace by being unhealthy or getting bedridden, etc. etc. So take care of that. The second is uh, you want to lead a good life, you must, your part of your DNA must be gratitude for what you have. Mm. Mm. We, we try and compare with people who have a lot of wealth, etc. Because we don't know what's actually going on in their lives. We only see the wealth. But within their life, there's a divorce. The son has beaten his father. Uh, extreme things happen. But be gratitude for what you have. So look at those who are not so well off from you and then thank God or somebody up there saying that I have got much more than what I want and I have got much more than what I deserve. This is the feeling that you must carry with you every day. I'm trying to be philosophical because it's worked for me. And the third is uh, never, never, never exploit another human being. In the corporate world, this happens so often because it all comes back. And the fourth, if I may say, in COVID days, when you've seen so many of your friends and relatives and close ones, just overnight you get the news that they're dead. When you get up in the morning and see the sun shining, and I do this, when I play golf, I offer a silent prayer that thank you very much. I am at least today seeing this. So again, gratitude. I think if this is there, living in the moment and all the family, friends, all that will follow with all this because then all the other other nonsensical thoughts never come to you. I think gratitude is a very big thing to your friends, very your family true. and everybody around you. Thanks, Jairam. Uh, I know you are uh, writing a column hmm. uh, in, in the business world. Yes. Other than that, where can people find you online? Well, uh, my LinkedIn. Uh, I, I, I post a lot of interesting stuff there. 
uh, I, I'm okay. doing this podcast. I'm going to be doing a series of podcasts with uh, Business World again on uh, short podcasts okay. on elements of you know what happens in organizations. And uh, I am on Twitter and I am on LinkedIn, and uh, or they can you know they read my book. So I would like to say last ending since uh, you know uh, in my book I've given my thing, but. If you want to seriously write, because like in golf, there are so many coaches and so many videos, it will ultimately, ultimately short circuit your brain. You will never be able to play good golf. Mm-hmm. The two things that helped me, I'm sharing my experiences. There's a book by John, John Truby. It's called Anatomy of a Story. If you are a serious reader, like the first thing is read. Read a lot like I did. Read this book end to end, John Truby's book. And in 2019, I went to London to attend a course by a guy called Robert Mackey, three-day workshop. Mm-hmm. He's 75 years yeah. old and he does these three-day workshops, seven, eight of them all over the world. In the last 30 years, about 70 of his students have won Oscar awards for some of the marquee, marquee movies. And he's got a book called, mm. he's got a book called Story, which is about screenwriting and story writing. So John Truby's book, John T R U B Y T for Toronto T R U B Y Trubby's book Anatomy of a Story and Robert Mackie M C K E E the book is called Story and go on YouTube there are so many stories that these guys they they are part of their books they share in YouTube only look at these two and work hard do research and be truthful that's what I have learned thanks Jayram uh, I will put all of these things in the show notes and when you start your podcast and good luck for your podcast Thank you. and when you start it, please share it. I will also put that, uh, I'll, I'll go back and update uh, the uh, links. Yes. Jairam, you talked about gratitude yes. and I cannot be more thankful to you for sharing all of your experiences with me in, in story writing and in life and in corporate and, and everything. I'm ex- extremely thankful for that. You know why I did it? Thank you, Jairam. But do you know why mm-hmm. I did it? Uh, first of all, thank Tell you. Me, thank you. You're being very kind by saying that. I have realized one thing that, you know, in my own life, there were points in life when people have helped me. They've helped me hold, help my hand. When I've gone into a river and stuck in the middle of the river, somebody has helped my hand. They have shared their experiences. So out of gratitude for what they have done for me, I have decided that wherever I have an opportunity, I will share some of these things that I've learned and experienced. And if it helps people, fine. If they dismiss it off as, you know, all uh, skullduggery, I, I can't, I don't have control on that. But that's the only reason why I do more of this all the time. Jairab, to every guest, I ask this particular question, what's the kindest thing that anyone has done for you? And they will narrate something like what you have done. And almost everyone would say what you have said. I'm paying it right. forward in one form or right. the other. Right. And right. that is why... The world is still livable. Absolutely. Bang Among on. all the polarization that is happening. Yes. Right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm absolutely. extremely thankful, Jairam, for, for being a nice, uh, you know, I'm a gem of a person and sharing all of the details uh, with me, Jairam. Well, Thank I, you very I'm, much. I am grateful that you chose to, you know, have me on the show. I, I'm truly grateful for that, Joseph. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please share what you liked in our conversation on social media and tag us. Have life of wins.